This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and our full catalog of past shows are available wherever you get your podcasts. Just search on Laura Zarrow and Women at Work to find us, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business and at Laura Zarrow to share what's on your mind. One of the things that's been on my mind has been the news that four times as many women as men have been leaving the workforce since the pandemic began. Years of professional and financial progress are slipping away, not just for these women and their families, but for all of us as we lose the collective benefit of their labor to the nation's economy and the immense talent that they bring to the table. In this context, the sixth annual Women in the Workplace report could not be more timely. A collaboration between McKinsey, LeanIn.org, and the Wall Street Journal, the study tracks the state of women in corporate America. It's why I'm so grateful to have one of the study's authors join us today to help us understand the report and consider what we can do together to better support these women. Lorena Yee is a senior partner at McKinsey & Company, as well as the firm's chief diversity and inclusion officer. She's a member of McKinsey's global partnership service team and leads the firm's technology, hardware, and services work. Lorena leads the Women in the Workplace Research Partnership and is a sought-after speaker and frequent author on digital disruption, sales growth, and women in the workplace. So with that, Lorena, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you. So excited to be here. So Lorena, I want to start by helping uh, our listeners understand the annual report, what its mission is, um, how the data is collected, and what's unusual this year. Yeah. Um, well, first thing is the report is one of the most comprehensive data studies of the experience of women at work. And what we do is we looked this year at over 317 companies, and we had over 40,000 men and women individually tell us what their work experience looks like. And through those questions, we look for what are some of the trends, but also where are their big differences? Where are their big differences between the work experience between men and women, between LGBTQ women, and um, between Black women, between Latinx women? So what we do is we take a look at all this data. We say, how much of that is actually different? And what are the implications? And the reason why we've done this study for so many years is because Previous to this, many people were observing that we weren't really making a ton of progress in corporate America. And um, we started with a really simple question, which is why? And if we know why, maybe we'll also think differently about how we take action. So, Lorena, I want to take half a step back because this is incredibly important, but the scope of the report, the consistency of the report, you mentioned, and I want to make sure I've got the data right, that there were 40,000 people who provided mm -hmm. input. So that means that in your data collection, it wasn't just organizations reporting on statistics. You actually queried individuals about their experiences. Exactly. So um, 317 companies this year uh, provided the benchmarks across different industries, mainly uh, mirroring the kind of think of them as Fortune 1000 type companies, so large companies. 
um, they, we looked at representation, we looked at promotion rates, we looked at attrition. That's what the companies told us. Then secondly, their HR teams told us about the types of programs and policies that they have in place. So they told us about what are they doing. And then thirdly, to your point, we talked to employees through a very extensive survey um, across all these companies and a different subset of those employees. So um, these companies employ over 12 million people and globally, and 40,000 Americans told us a bit of what's going on. And that probably is the jumping off point for some of the most interesting insights. So it's not surprising then that the report did an amazing job of revealing the state of the leadership pipeline and not just by gender, but by identity as well. Mm -hmm. And how many women are being lost between entering that pipeline and moving into that first next stage of management. Why are we losing so many women there and especially women of color? It's a great question. I think the first thing to note is when we took a look at representation in companies, we were taking a look at their 2019 data. So their full year data and we collected that and they showed us where they work. Think of it as, as of January, 2020. And I mentioned that because that is the state of representation before COVID hit. And what's fascinating is, and what's important to note is that when you look at 2015 to 2019, there were bright spots and there were real signs of improvement. Some industries like, um, for example, the software industry had actually seen remarkable improvements between 2015 and 2020, where they were significantly below the average in corporate America and had reached the average. Now, of course, this is a really, like the math on this is really important because average means that, you know, at the top, you have about 20% reporting to the CEO, you have about 30% in top leadership. But the point is some of the differentiation we saw in industries, you could see that their hard work was making a difference. And across corporate America, we saw gains, especially at the top, but now COVID is changing everything. So Lorena, um, yeah. Hearing that there was real progress at the top is, you know, so exciting, and we've been working on that for so long. But as part of why the average was also growing was that more women were coming in to the front of the pipeline, or was it mm-hmm. really a, just a retention issue? Um, well, both. You saw an increase. So the, these are big statistics. So every percentage matters a lot. So we saw. Um, a two-point average gain between 2015 and 2020 in entry level. So we had about 47% entry-level women. So that's that's good. Um, and at the very top, we went from 17% to 21% reporting to the CEO. Now, for some listeners, you may say, well, that's that's not a lot. But what that means is maybe you went from two women to five women um, reporting to the CEO. And I can tell you, sitting in a boardroom or an exec team room, it really makes a difference when you start to have a more critical mass of diversity Mm -hmm. on many dimensions and gender being one of them. Where we were still struggling before COVID is something um, that we talked about last year in the report called the broken rung, which is that a lot of people have focused on that classic notion of a glass ceiling at the top. And that, you know, we're kind of cracking and chipping away at it and we start to see some daylight. The challenge is is that there's an equally kind of iron ceiling um, at the entry level. So what we looked at was entry level to manager. Think of this as your first promotion early in your Mm -hmm. career. 
And what we've seen over the last three years and for quite a while is that for every 100 men who receive that first manager promotion, only 85 women would have that same promotion. And oh, by the way, if you're a black woman um, in 2019, that number was 59% or 59. So when people say that they feel or they might have the impression that they're getting stuck early on, they're not leaving the workforce, but they're not advancing as quickly if if they have that impression, um, there's some data behind that that shows that that's the case. Now, over time, they may catch up. But it's just interesting to us that the rung, that first rung is so broken. So those statistics give me a moment's pause because one, Mm -hmm. it's progress that we got to, what'd you say, 47%, but that's still not, you know, equal to our representation in the population. For sure not. A 15% attrition rate um, or lack of promotion into manager is its own concern for white women, never mind a 41% gap for black women and women of color. That's, th- yeah, that's and a these are sort big of percentage. It's a, well, they're not percentage. Actually, they're kind of odds of advancement. So they okay. are like for every 100 men, you would see 58 women. It's a little odd because the populations aren't at parity, but the math kind of footnotes aside, absolutely. And, um, you know, the other thing that we saw, which tailors into this year's findings is that overall attrition of men and women for all of these companies are fairly similar. So the vast majority of them, when we looked at uh, manager, senior manager, VPs, et cetera, men and women were leaving those companies at similar rates. So there's this myth um, that we thought was important to bust, um, you know, several years ago, handful of mm-hmm. years ago, when people would say casually, oh, well, I think the women are just leaving my company. And uh, what we wanted to understand at that time is, A, wh- in which companies were women leaving at higher rates? And the answer is very few. And then secondly, if they did leave, so like, let's say you had an 11% attrition of managers, we would say you probably had 11% of women and maybe like 11.5% of men. So men and women are both leaving. The second myth is that women are leaving to take care of their children. And that may be the case um, in some instances. Um, And that's perfectly fine for a woman to choose to to take on um, kind of the unpaid economy as her full-time career. I think that's absolutely fine. It's a separate separate topic. But what's fascinating is when we surveyed women and we said, if you were to leave in two or three years, so just anticipate your future, if you were to leave, why? And one of the choices was to take care of your children and your family. Very few women said that. The vast majority of women said that they would just go to a competitor. That's an incredibly important point. So Lorena, if I'm getting what you just shared with us correctly, that um, true to my own experience, the myth that women will leave the workforce to take care of children um, was busted in the data that you gathered over the last five years. However, something unusual is happening right now if I understand the data. And that is in this window since COVID began, that's no longer the case. Women actually are leaving the workforce in greater numbers than men because it has gotten too hard to stay. Do I have that correct? women are signaling the intent okay. to step back or, or step out. So one in four women told us that they are considering stepping out or stepping back. And the reason this is so crucial 
is that if they are thinking about it, companies still have an opportunity to convince them to stay or to change the way that work works such that there's a reason to stay. And what's fascinating is um, we, you asked me about the survey set. So 40,000 men and women, they were surveyed on their experiences in the workplace and they largely took the survey between June, um, sort of May, June, July, August. That's in the that. thick of it. That is in the thick of it. That, and for the vast majority, it was after George Floyd. Almost everyone filled out the survey after George Floyd. And after the first sprint of the pandemic and staring into a summer without childcare and camps and staring into business performance results being very, very different for the vast majority of companies and an increased level of business pressure and performance pressure. And then we saw another kind of another kind of stare that down in the fall when we realized that um, this would be really through the end of this year and through a good part of next year. So I want to explore this issue of the likeliness because I'm actually quite comforted that it's not as it hasn't happened yet, but there's it seems like there's a solid chance that it will happen. So do we have an understanding of what's going to be the thing that tips these women over the edge? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so first, it's important to think, who are these women? And a lot of people would make a quick assumption that we're just talking about parents. We're talking about women with kids, and particularly women with young kids. And while that is a group of women, mothers, who are saying, mm -hmm. this is differentially um, difficult. Um, it's also a story about senior level women. Um, so think of your SVPs and VPs who may or may not have children, um, and many of them don't. And then it's also a story of black women where we see the most significant pressures. And the issue is not whether women are willing to do the extra work, although we did measure that. So for working mothers, um, they're spending on average three additional hours a day. So think of that as 15 hours, at least a week of their kind of call it their non-paid job when they mm -hmm. get home. And of course they're living in the office, so <laughs> they're working and then they're moving home to do their second shift. The, but I don't think it's just the pure pound per pound hours. The more disturbing piece of the findings is that they are two, two times more likely, working moms are two times more likely then fathers to worry that their performance will be negatively judged because of caregiving mm. responsibilities. And these are not, I would like to take on more. These are, I have to take on more. The schools aren't open. There are no daycares. There's no child support services. So these are working moms. Maybe my nearly adult children have re-nested and <laughs> taking care of them. These are not, um, you know, these are not, I would like to take on more as a mom, these are, I am trying to keep my family going. And what worries me is that they are worried about the professional risk and impact that has. So that's one piece. The second piece on senior women, and I'm sure we can go back to talk about mothers, is that they are far more likely than their male peers to feel that they always have to be on. And they are more likely to feel consistently exhausted and more likely to be taking on allyship work, especially as they kind of work through the impact of structural racism in their own companies and try and care 
and lead um, their people. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important just, and we can talk about women of color in a second, but it's important just to think your mothers and your senior level women, um, this tension between working harder um, and also feeling professional risk. It's really, really different. So it sounds like for both, I don't want to oversimplify it, mm-hmm. but I'm looking for the thread between that there's an important distinction between um, what you referred to earlier in the conversation, where women are making a choice that they want more of something. And so as our pre-COVID state, when does a woman want more time at home, more time in community, um, more time to develop in other ways, or needs it because of family pressures? And um, the difference of having no choice. These aren't choices. These are burdens, pressures, and tensions that are now piling up on working women. And that at the senior, and so part of it are caretaking responsibilities that are non-negotiable. And senior women, if I'm hearing you correctly and, and understanding it, is that A, there's a kind of precondition of a hypervigilance about perception that we've probably carried through our careers, then augmented by by, um, a sincere effort in allyship, which is again, more work. And so there's a kind of double duty here of the burden of caretaking, sometimes by choice or a sense of kind of moral imperative. And at the same time, the anxiety that's very real about what, how are we perceived and rated when it looks like our attention is split? Yeah, I think um, the data doesn't tell you all of that, but I think mm-hmm. anecdotally, um, we have heard uh, we have heard many stories that follow that. I think what the data tells you in you know it's kind of most black and white sense is the significant um, that the burden uh, in household duties right now, how big it is and um, how much more likely women versus men are to take that on. Um, And it also tells us that women are more concerned about the professional risk, um, that they'll be judged negatively um, for how they're they're, uh, for these extra burdens. Um, I think what the data also tells you is overwhelmingly men and women feel their number one Thing that they feel pressure about is obviously layoffs and furloughs. That makes mm-hmm. a ton of sense right now. But interestingly enough, the second and third thing they're most worried about um, is burnout and mental health. And then the fourth piece is childcare. Um, and we do see in many cases that women are more relatively more concerned about these, but that kind of the top concerns are very similar. And it's interesting because if we we didn't ask this question last year, of course, we weren't in COVID, but burnout and mental health were not top themes that came up when we would do interviews of men and women in corporate America. Um, There were many interesting topics raised. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, the flexibility to use, you know, video technology instead of hopping on an airplane, which probably people feel they have too much of now. (laughs) Um, But um, this was not a topic. So I think you know, look, the the bright side of this, or maybe the more generous point of view is that there are an incredible amounts of pressure on both men and women in the workplace. And how do you adjust that? 
What is a red flag is that there are some distinct pressures that spike up right now for women. Um, and they are telling us that they're absolutely experiencing it. And when we say one in four women are thinking about stepping out and stepping back, um, a huge footnote is that while they may feel that way, they may not economically be in a place where they can act on that. So the compression of, of work and um, reality pressures may be quite high because they're vocalizing the intent. They may or may not leave. Um, they may or may not be able to. Um, so I think that's just an important point to say, you know, if you think about your workforce, if you're the head of HR, you're the head of a unit, part of this is really understanding where your people are at and how would you meet them in this moment? Right, because it means that it's not just that they're under pressure, it's that what they could see as alleviating that pressure is not an option for them. And it so it means that they have to live with it um, on an ongoing basis, which only makes it mount kind of exponentially. Um, so we, I don't want to gloss over an important group in this, which is to also talk about women of color, um, mm -hmm. both where the intersectionality hits at these different stages of career and also in general in the workplace, um, because there's a whole, there's an enormously important social kind of revolution happening that's taking a huge toll on people. Yeah. So it wasn't, it was fairly grim before. <laughs> there were great disparities before COVID. So um, one of the things that we have uh, looked at over the last handful of years is um, the experience of being an only and the experience of microaggression. So being an only is um, if you visualize it, it is when you walk into a meeting and you are the only of you, meaning you're the only woman, you're the only black woman, you're the only woman with a disability, um, and how often that happens. And we know that women of color overall, whether you're Asian, uh, Latina, or black, we're far more likely to experience this, um, and and you know far more far more likely to experience being an only but also to experience um, the microaggressions as well. So it's not the overt acts of discrimination, but it is the, the cuts that, you know, the 10,000 cuts that add up to a yes. huge wound. Um, so for example, you know, being considered um, more junior than you really are, um, you know, the, the story I have sadly heard too many times in interviews where, um, you know, a black woman will say that she was, mistaken for a, you know, someone in the janitorial services team, as opposed mm -hmm. to the head of the business unit. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, your work being questioned um, more often and getting less support from managers when your work is questioned, um, you know, or being assumed that if you respond in an authoritative way, that you're, an, you know, you're an angry black woman, like, uh, so just a ton of different um realities of the workplace. So that's kind of where we were before. And we could probably just sit and be a bit depressed just on that alone. <laughs> um, it, but the challenge during COVID is that Black women were three times more likely um, than other women to report a death of a loved one. And um, they, you know, were the least comfortable of all the different groups that we surveyed to feel that they could share that loss at work. 
So COVID disproportionately um, has hit caregiving responsibilities for black women, family responsibilities, but also the idea of an inclusive workplace where you can bring what is happening to yourself in the most fundamental way to work. Um, so, you know, this is, this is a huge tension. Um, some people find the analysis or just kind of shining a light on the experience of black women um, to be really helpful because they're like, it's good to put it on the table. And some people will say, my goodness, it just feels like we can't possibly crawl out of this deficit, this, this equity deficit. And I guess the important thing around um, what we also found over the course of the summer is that black women with real allies at work were two times more likely to say that they would stay, to say that they felt included, to see a fair workplace, and to feel positive about advancing. Right so yeah. that you want to stop on that one. I want to stop <laughs> on that one because that is just really, I need those little nuggets of hope right now, as I think we all yeah. do. So Lorena, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you. In in the first half hour, we were talking about many of the findings that were in the report. Um, the, the fact that in this sixth year, um, it's showing a, what are continued patterns, what are changing patterns, and particularly the challenges that people and especially women are facing since COVID. Um, the anxiety about the pressures that are mounting, um, the consideration of leaving because those pressures are becoming untenable. Um, and one of the things though that the report did, which it always does, which is part of why I love it, is it also talks about strategies that employers can take to help retain these women and make things easier. So I wanna talk a little bit about this, particularly aside from furloughs and layoffs, women are leaving because it's unmanageable or thinking about it because the pressures are so high. How can employers make work more sustainable for these at-risk employees? How much of it is about policy? How much of it is about culture? It's about both. Uh, it's about a culture of belonging and inclusion. And it's also about policies that really meet us where we are at an incredibly tough moment. And that felt like maybe a sprint in March and April, and it is something that we will likely be working through over the next year for a full year. Mm -hmm. So um, rethinking both are incredibly important. And oh, by the way, at a place where you don't have your homing beacon of a corporate headquarters or an office or a physical location where everyone comes together. So the culture gets carried then in different ways and it gets carried through um, organizational communication, one-to-one -one communication, um, kind of the norms that get set around meetings in a virtual world. Are there any places within this that we should be paying careful attention to, to try and be aware of our messaging and change it so that um, we can, get a different understanding out there in the culture. Communication is definitely uh, a really important piece of it. And it's kind of think of it maybe as your entry portal into culture because then it's followed by so much more. Um, some of that uh, that has gone really well over the pandemic period is that employees acknowledge and will say that they definitely see their companies responding to 
all that is happening, um, the vast majority around COVID and also around um, structural racism. So a great level of response. The question is, how do you take the ball further down the field? And that's where you start to get into how do I create more authenticity in my leadership? How do I create more empathy? How do I help those skills translate in practical ways to a frontline manager who has a team of 10 people, not necessarily leading the whole company? How do I actually change the culture of work? How do I reset rituals in a world where some of the kind of the cornerstones of what kept our culture together, um, we won't be able to do for another six, seven months. So if I'm understanding that, the we have a power, it's not just the power of the organization as a whole. Like when I got a lovely note from my head of HR who said, you have all been working so hard, we're expanding the winter break. And please log off early before Thanksgiving. And by the way, here are a few Fridays, like a message that says, we see you, we feel you, we want to make this easier. But that without it coming from that kind of central top of the food chain, um, it also can come from us as managers, even those of us who have teams of five or six or 10 people. Um, and that it involves how we listen and how we support. Absolutely. And that example you raised is a great example that encapsulates getting kind of starting. And then you would say, okay, now let's run that ball down the field. And I'm terrible with sports analogies, so you can pick what sport <laughs> this belongs to. But you would say, so, so what your manager, what the leader in your organization just did was a couple of really important things. One is they um, acknowledge with real empathy and authenticity the experience that so many people are having and just vocalizing that and saying that too, they, um, uh, they put themselves in a position to be a bit vulnerable, which we see some of the best leaders right now really doing that. And three, that likely had an impact on you on a bit of psychological safety to say, yes, I need a break. Yes. Feeling <laughs> that you will not be penalized or sort of looked down on um, or considered less ambitious to work if you say, yes, I need a break. And then the last thing that your manager did, not to completely analyze it, um, but the last thing your manager did was they, or your leader did, was they changed policy. Because I'm pretty sure last year, you weren't taking those extra Fridays off. Those weren't official days off. I'm pretty sure that, you know, some companies do have winter kind of shutdowns, but most don't. Um, most just have a vast majority of people taking PTO. So that to me is like the beginning of a set of both leadership sort of tone from the top, actual practical changes in policies and programs, and then also a culture where you make people feel psychologically safe. And when you start to put those things together in concert and you say, we did that, and then we did something else like that, and then one more and one more and one more, that's the concept of how you take the ball down the field. Okay, so now I have a companion um, issue within the workplace that the report addresses, which is, so it's one thing if, you know, that kind of cultural change happens, the empathy, the support, a little space to breathe. At the same time, though, we're still measured on the same goals. 
We still have performance evaluation processes that we go through. Um, so that there, I hear from many people, and it's an issue that I think the report takes up beautifully, of what happens when those things are at odds with each other. And as managers, what can we do to help close that gap? So that we haven't said, go relax, but don't relax. Yeah. Um, I think this is the crux of a very hard question for a lot of companies. Um, the, one of the most important things in performance reviews um, over the course of the pandemic is to make sure that you've checked the biases at the door. So if there was ever a time to make sure that performance reviews are fair, that context is taken into consideration, um, and all these kind of practices we've heard of, now would be a good time to implement that. Um, so many companies have put um, by, you know, biased listeners in the rooms. Many companies have kind of done a quick thing before reviews just to kind of set the ground rules on how you think about things. So there, there are many ways in which companies are, are very tactically and practically making sure that reviews are fair. Um, this... So I think that's something everyone can do. And Lorena, is this in general about um, a sincere drive to be more equitable and inclusive? and or an effort to recognize that the bias around the burden that relates to gender and identity could be a factor in performance reviews. In other words, what you were talking about before, that if women are perceived as caregivers, they're perceived as not being all in and it could hurt them in their performance review. Yeah, I think it's a capacity to make sure any type of bias like that or you know any number of things is, is not clouding the picture. Um, and I'm careful about this because that's something, taking bias out of performance or being more careful. I mean, you can't de-bias. I mean, part of this is unconscious bias is that you're unconscious. So, you, you know, it's a <laughs> right. little bit of like, you know, I, I can try and do better. And there are ways to create checks and balances um, that significantly reduce bias in performance reviews. But that's something everyone can do. And then I pause because depending on the type of industry or sector, there are a variety of other things you can do. Um, so for example, um, some of the tech companies have announced work from home and, you know, just take that pressure off for the next, you know, until next summer. And they were very early in the gate to announce that. They also, um, you saw tech companies say, we're going to hold performance reviews this year. Um, some tech companies said we will um, reset expectations on performance and kind of, you know, take it down a notch um, to meet where, where we are. And you can see that I keep saying these, um, some of these are tech companies. The reason why I say that is many of these tech companies are also um, either counter cyclical or actually performing quite well. And I just mentioned this because there are industries that have been structurally hit through no fault of their own, and they are ba barely treading water. So the idea that they're not going to have a performance review is completely unrealistic. Right. Cause I'd that imagine said, say in, in the restaurant have... industry, it's a very different story than it is in tech. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's where there's a bit of nuance to say, look, what everyone can do is make sure whatever review processes they have are fair and that they've really thought through that. And not just the ones at the top for the SVP jobs, but all the way to the entry level and really making sure you do that. On top of that, I think there are probably a menu of call it five to 10 other things you could consider doing. And I think it very much depends on the industry and the state of your business. So in the other extreme, um, 
there are companies who have been restructuring. They have had no choice. They have had to do layoffs over the course of um, 2020. Some companies have said, we wanna make sure that in the process of our restructuring, that A, we communicate differently and are far more transparent about what is happening, but B, that we don't um, inadvertently uh, lose more ground in diversity, meaning that um, in well, so meaning that when you come out of a restructuring, you haven't disproportionately lost ground on representation of people of color, representation of women, um, and to put some checks and balances in the system. So, Lorena, I want to ask a question about addressing these biases, and you talked about unconscious bias in this process and how it. Um, how critically it can permeate the performance review process and how important it is that we, and also um, protect against when there are furloughs or layoffs because it's an economic necessity. Um, we know that bias intervention is really important. We also know it can have a big backlash. What are you seeing and what advice can you give for organizations or teams that want to um, bring some training and intervention to the table in a way that can be effective, given that we're kind of in crisis mode? Yeah, so one, one thing having uh, observed and talked to a lot of companies is that um, where it doesn't work so well is something I, I think of as kind of hit and run training. It's sort of like- The silver bullet. Yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, yes, you're right. Unconscious bias is a really big issue. Let's do a mandatory 30-minute training. And the training may be excellent. And you should probably do the 30-minute mandatory training. But what's important is that you don't dine and dash, that you actually then keep going. And so you have a 30-minute training, you have an introduction to the concept, and it can't just be training. It actually has to be woven into the processes and the heartbeat of how a company works. So performance reviews, um, let's think of something more optimistic, promotions, making sure that you don't over index of familiarity bias that you know your own success model are markers for people coming up, that actually someone with a very different profile than you could do your job just as well, maybe even better. <laughs> um, so there are lots of different points in time when you think of how the rhythm of how a company ticks, where you would want to make sure that, that, you know, you're kind of checking those biases at the door or actually acknowledging some of them and working through. Um, and so I think the companies who are doing better in this are taking that deeper level um, of, of look. Companies that are struggling a little bit, uh, potentially are falling into this kind of diamond dash mode where, well, we did it once, why isn't everything better? And while I completely appreciate the positive intent of, of starting, um, some of this work is changing culture, which we know is super <laughs> hard. And it's not just one quarter or one kind of campaign. It's actually something that you have to persist on. So in that strategy, there are multiple prongs to it. One mm -hmm. is certainly um, making sure that you're gathering data, applying data, considering decisions and choices informed by data about the identity of the population affected. Um, another, though, sounds like it's how do we bring that down to the team level? Mm -hmm. And especially because it's at that level that we're conducting performance evaluations of our own team. Mm 
And also that's the place where as manager, hopefully I can create and change culture. So in this context, how can, without the aid of an instructor and a bias intervention program, as managers, how can we learn how to talk about race and make an environment where it's safe and productive? I'm so glad you asked that. So um, what I love about what you're asking is we have to go beyond training and learning and observing bias to actually leading differently. And so it gets to actions, uh, two actions that stand out in my mind uh, with respect to race, but also with respect to um, gender and those two things can be combined. Two ideas, one is um, courageous conversations. One of the things that we have seen um, that is really positive is the number of courageous conversations that companies are having. So certainly sparked and uh, driven by George Floyd and several concurrent events, um, it, it pushed many companies to say, we have to actually talk about this and I don't have the perfect words. And by the way, I need to learn more. And I, by the way, thought that I understood the context to which my team members, people I have worked with for 10 years come to work, but in fact, actually, maybe I should ask and listen a little bit more because I may not have realized that someone I've worked with for 10 years and deeply respect has been arrested twice for just walking in their neighborhood after dinner. And so, I think the courageous conversation is not about a conversation of perfection. It's a conversation mm -hmm. of imperfection and the courage to create a safe environment for people to ask questions, to talk, to share, and maybe not have a solution yet. Maybe actually the first piece is just authentically listening and understanding. And through that, we can start to think about big solutions or very micro solutions, just at least within our team. So that's one piece. The second piece is allyship which is that we know, um, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, that allyship really matters. And I think there's a trio of three acts that any manager can take that make a huge difference, allyship, sponsorship, and mentorship. And we've talked a lot over the last five, six years about mentorship and mm -hmm. sponsorship, sponsorship being opportunity creation. But allyship is also incredibly important, particularly for black women, Latina women, but just overall. And for allyship, what we saw this year is that 77% of men and women said, who are managers in managerial roles said, oh, I am an ally. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's great. 77% are allies. This is really news for optimism. Later in the survey, as they're filling out their questions, we asked, do you do any of the following actions? And they were in our, you know, in our research, actions that support the idea that you're an ally. And the answers were very low. Things like, do you mentor at least one person of color or a woman? Like less than 15%. Wow, okay. <laughs> so do you, have you asked someone on your team about how racial violence in America has affected them? Very low. Um, so there are a number of questions around allyship. And so the point is, is that the good news is the intent is very high. 
And this is something really important in our work is that we see enormous positive intent. The question or the challenge is the execution is, is lagging. And so what's, what is really important is to say 77% of people say they are, are allies. They probably want to be allies. That's great. Now, how do we give them the tools and specifics so that they can be good allies? They can be good allies to black women and men. They can be good allies to women with disabilities. They can be good allies to LGBTQ colleagues. How, how do we give them those tools? And, um, and how do you make that an expectation of how we work and lead versus an exceptional reaction to something completely atrocious happening in the news? Lorena, as you're talking about these courageous conversations and the importance of helping our creating psychological safety for our teams, um, how it sounds to me like as leaders, part of what we need to do is be vulnerable enough to say, I don't know, and to ask the questions that will help us know and create a better dialogue. But that upends what we've been taught over time about authority, hierarchy, um, particularly in environments where because of the way when we're not in the dominant group, our authority may be fundamentally questioned because of biases. So how do we help leaders and managers um, bring that to the table and put it to work in ways that are sustainable for them and impactful for their teams? It's a, it's a great question. So a couple of things that a manager can do. One is it's a leadership moment. And so what does that mean? One is initiating the dialogue. So while we're going to solve it together and you um, may not have all the answers, there is great responsibility in initiating the conversation. Two is what you said, Laura, about being vulnerable as a leader is a great strength of leadership, not a weakness. Um, three, role modeling and open discussion, meaning that someone, um, you know, anyone on the team could have any type of point of view and it's working through it together. So someone could say, I don't see racism. I just don't see it. Or someone could say, let me share with you an experience I had with the police. So there can be such a range. And then how do you create a team environment to work through it? The other piece is that there is a responsibility of leaders to educate themselves a bit more on what's going on or a lot more. So one piece of feedback is it is not the responsibility of every black woman to let you know what it feels like to be a black woman. There's actually an enormous amount of academic research. There's an enormous amount of wonderful things that have been written to help you understand the entry point to the conversation. So investing the time yourself to understand the humility to say, you know, I, this is an uncomfortable, this is a hard conversation, let's have it. The leadership to step up and create that. And then not just doing it once, checking in individually with team members and making sure that your team can have, whether it's on this topic of racism or other topics, that type of conversation. It makes all the difference in the world when, like you said, you make it part of your leadership approach to be vulnerable, to ask these questions. You also brought up something that was really um, made real for me by a member of my team, which was that when we turned to her, when her friends were turning to her as a black woman to say, help me navigate this, her individual burden was greater. Mm -hmm. 
And mm-hmm. so reinforcing the importance of what you said, of there's an enormous amount of literature out there. Fortunately, there are also an enormous number of allies, scholars, practitioners who are putting new information out there. So there are resources to help all of us who are striving to be allies and better allies to understand the experience of others without burdening them with the um, additional work of teaching us. Absolutely. Lorena, all this work is so meaningful. It's so fascinating for people who want to learn more about it. Where can they find you? Where can they find the report? Uh, They can find me and the report. Um, It is on um, our website at McKinsey. We also have a Women in Workplace landing page that we've developed with Lean In, where you can see, um, you can download past reports um, and other materials. Or if you are a company CEO and you would like to sign up to be part of the benchmarking, of course, you can participate next year. Um, I think in these type of discussions, there's, you're never sure if you're going to reach for uh, an alcoholic or a caffeinated or a soothing cup of ginger tea out of these. Um, So for those who may feel like, oh my gosh, it's so depressing. look, I think that there's power in information. And the purpose of the report is to provide that information. And that is something um, that whether it's good news or hard news, it's worthy news to know. And then you think about how it affects your team and your environment. Lorena, it's actually been quite uplifting to know that there are things that we can do and the problems being increasingly understood. So thank you for joining us today. And to all of our listeners out there, thank you. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXMBusiness and me at Laura Zarrow. Many thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.